Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. We've been going through the book of Romans, and we've been going a little chunk at a time, and now we're coming to a section that is, um, it might feel like a parenthetical moment in the letter, but it is not. Uh, Paul, as a rabbi, has had the story of Israel on front of his mind all through, all through this journey. Uh, but Romans 8 ends with this powerful description of of the gospel. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in, in Jesus. And then Romans 12 starts with what a transformed life as a follower of Jesus looks like. In view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed by, by, by be changed by the renewing of your minds. And in the middle is this, is this question that's been on the front of Paul's mind, but he's going to make it more explicit, which is what about God's promises to Israel? What about the story that God was telling all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all through Israel's, uh, Israel's story, the giving of the law and the prophets? What, what, what about all of that now that, that God has begun this new covenant in the person of Jesus? And so, in order to get through Romans by Advent, and in order to cover this entire argument in one Sunday, we're about to have, buckle up, the longest teaching text you've ever heard read in a church. So I just want to invite you to... Uh, Settle in. You know, if you have popcorn, this is the time for it. Um, and I'm going to invite up our text readers in just a moment, and they're going to read Romans 9, 10, and half of 11. And then I'm just going to say a few things, okay? All right, let's do this. Uh, I just want to pray for these guys. Uh, Heavenly Father, would you just give us ears to hear as your word is read? You, you, you tell us in the New Testament to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And it is very rare that we give ourselves to this much, uh, but I pray that even as we move through and the questions um, that this text raises in our minds or, or the hope that it inspires or the confusion that it, that it brings, I pray that your spirit would be present with us, um, that you would give us ears to hear and that you would help us to hear this, the specific prophetic words that we as a community need uh, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as Caleb said, we're reading from Romans chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11, verse 12. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written. Jacob I have loved, but... Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask... Have they not heard? Indeed they have, for 
Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have, not, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no, no longer be grace. What then? Israel have failed to, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Simple enough. We, uh, we had... We had uh, we had it in the two different versions just to keep you loose, make sure you were focused. We could have done it together, but just that little disruption of expectation keeps you more concentrated, we found. NASA research confirms. Uh, congratulations, you made it. That's the longest teaching text there'll ever be in our church. Give yourselves a hand. Um, you can always say you were, you were a part of the remnant. You were here for the record. Um, so there's so much uh, that we have to jump in and, and, and just get started because there's so much to cover here. But um, I, w- I want to say if, if just in hearing that you kind of were struggling to keep your conf- concentration or if, if you know, this, this story of God's particular dealings with Israel feels distant from your everyday life or irrelevant to you in some way, I want to invite you to hang on because I think uh, that as we move through together, we're going to come very close to where where all of us, all of us live. So uh, let me pray again. Heavenly Father, would you um, yeah, take this uh, long and complicated argument that Paul is uh, making and help, help it uh, come, come near to where we, where we really live and uh, speak to us. Uh, we, we invite you, uh, as we have been all morning, uh, just to tune our ears to see your grace, to sing your grace, to know intimately your covenant love and uh, I just I need your help we need your help as a church family so we we ask you for that we we we, uh, commit these moments to you in Jesus name amen so one of the most shocking statements uh, in the entire 
uh, long passage that we just read comes comes right at the right at the beginning. Um, you, 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 the Apostle Paul, who, who's just as I said uh, before before they read the text, he's just finished giving us one of the most breathtaking, uh, stirring, beautiful descriptions of the gospel uh, that that's that's recorded in the New Testament or, or I- anywhere in literature. And uh, the, the gospel of Jesus has come crashing into the world and the spirit of God fills us. And that, that, that's actually the secret of how we live as, as sons and daughters of God is that we're filled with his spirit. And that, that, that gives us a share in his inheritance, that we're, that we're co-heirs with Christ. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That his, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That, that no matter what, we can learn to live not by this old operating system that we lived in before we knew God, but we can learn to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and even if we, we fail or we come into incredible resistance from the world internally, externally, from, from spiritual forces, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then Paul opens Romans 9 by saying, I wish I was separated from the love of God. Which is kind of shocking based on everything else he said uh, up to this point. He says he's so heartbroken over how many of his countrymen and women have missed their Messiah, have missed, um, missed out on what God is doing, that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ to bring them in. I, I think this, this should register for us as uh, shocking anguish. <laughs> Shocking anguish. And uh, it's born out of a, a couple of things. One, some of those things are, are inherent in Paul's story. But, but I think there's just a quick word for us as, um, as Americans in this time, right? Um, what are the things that bring you shocking anguish? How many of them are, how many of them are rooted in deep love? Right? Shocking anguish that's rooted in self-concern is really understandable for us. And it, it seems increasingly in our country like we're sectioning off into political tribes, into ideological tribes, and our anguish is all about what's happening to us and our thing. And so it's in, in, incredibly stirring and powerful to, to, to sense an invitation to really understand the other in such a way that you would be in anguish over their condition, that you would be in anguish over the things that are happening to them, that we could love in that way, right? This Later in this letter, Paul's going to give one of the like zenith level descriptions of Christian community, which is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We talk about that a lot at Trinity Grace Park Slope, that that means to be pulled out of the small cage of selfishness, that your joy would be so connected to someone else's joy that a good thing happening to them actually lifts your heart. That your, your pain and, and your life would be so interwoven with their life that their, their, their agony becomes your agony, like... That's a beautiful picture of what love looks like in action, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And Paul is demonstrating it for us here. And he's really, I mean, maybe he's being hyperbolic to some degree, but he is really shocking in what he says he's willing to endure for the sake of his neighbor, for the sake of his countrymen, for the sake of his brothers and sisters, his families who, who have, he's going down the road and in the rear view, he's seen they've taken another road. It's like, I have no idea how we're going to get back, back together. <laughs> I think there are a couple things in Paul's story that help stoke the fire of this anguish. One, we remember that when we first meet Paul in the, in the New Testament, he's called Saul. Uh, he's a highly trained um, uh, elite rabbi. He's a Pharisee. He's, um, he has a lot of power when we first meet him in the, in the story. He's passionate 
about the purity of, of Israel's religious practice. When we first meet Saul, uh, he's literally trying to stamp out the movement of Jesus because he sees it as a threat to the pure religious practice of Israel. Uh, he was even willing, of course, to resort to violence to maintain that purity when the movement of Jesus was first beginning to grow. So he uses a phrase later in this section of the letter, and, and I think you can sense that it has a biographical tone to it. He's mentioning others who were just like him, and he says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. That's Romans 10, verse 2. The word, not, the word knowledge here in, in the Greek is epigenosis. And it, it doesn't just mean uh, that you have information about a thing in your mind. Th- this word knowledge in the, in the Greek, is, it, it connotes intimate familiarity. It's the, there's a relational context. When this word, this word for knowledge is used in other parts of the New Testament, it's used to categorize the relationship between a husband and a wife. So like Adam knew Eve. That's the type of knowledge we're talking about here. Intimate familiarity with someone. So he's saying that there is a religious zeal, a passionate religious practice, a passionate ideology that's lacking intimate familiarity. And I know exactly what that feels like because that was me. That's Paul saying, I I, I know what what that felt like. At Paul's conversion, he had many passionate ideas about God. But the God he had many passionate ideas about spoke his name. And that, that changed everything for him. He, 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 he sensed the, the God that he had ideas about speaking his name. Jesus asked him a kind of interesting question on the road to Damascus, this famous conversion story of the apostle who writes this letter to Rome. Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? Paul had been persecuting the followers of Jesus, but when Jesus comes and confronts him about it, he's so intimately familiar with his followers that he says, why are you persecuting me? Do you, do you realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, that's how closely Christ identifies with you? That <laughs> he knows exactly what it is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so he confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, why are you persecuting me? And we know that Paul's entire life Entire life changes from that, from that moment. Everything that he had built his reputation on, all the definitions that he had for what make a good life were dismantled and had to be reconstructed in light of this intimate familiarity that he began to have with the person of Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul gives his own resume and he says, all these things that, were, that, that made me distinguished and accomplished, I consider them rubbish. And the, and the New Testament translation for that is like a swear word. I consider it total crap. Everything that I had before, all that zeal that I had before I had intimate familiarity with God was, was, is nothing. But something had happened. In that powerful conversion, right, what could Paul have said right, at that moment? Like, he gets apprehended by the love of God on the road to Damascus, and he, he could have said, you know what, this is amazing, this, this really feels great, but, but I just, I, I, I can't do it. You know, like, I, I'm too committed to this other way. Like, no way, everything had been dismantled about his understanding of God, and it was being put back together in an entirely new way. But something else very painful happened. Many that he had loved, many that he had walked with, many that he had gone to school with, many that he had trained with, many that he loved, many that he called family, now found themselves on an entirely different road. Some of you know exactly what this pain is like. You have family members... (laughs) 
that aren't followers of Jesus and that think you're bizarre for being one, right? You have people that, right, we've already mentioned it a little bit, but are in a different ideological place than you, and it's like, it makes Thanksgiving really awkward, really, really challenging, really, really difficult. I knew something of this pain uh, in my own time in university. I came to this place where I had these dear friends, people that I, that were like, as close to me like brothers and sisters. And then God brought this change in my life. I knew he was changing me and I knew that I wanted to and that I had to go with it. But I had friends that were like, like brothers and sisters to me and I remember the conversations. I literally remember standing, there was this compound that called, we called it Schumann's Compound um, because it was this crazy uh, high school science teacher named Schumann. This is not details you need, but I'm just, I just want you to know. Um, and he kind of like took in stray human beings. Um, so like when you were down on your, absolutely down on your luck, um, you could come and live at Schumann's place until you got back on your feet. And these are, this is the place that I hung out a lot in, in college. And it was the sort of place you like walk out into this wilderness of his yard. There'd be like a refrigerator and like potted plants in the fridge. I just want to give you a picture that I remember standing there talking to these friends that I had drank with, that we had, had, had partied together, that we had, had uh, just had like... Quite frankly, though we were abusing our bodies and our minds quite amazing times and thought that we were, we were like kin, you know, that we were, we were so close. And I remember standing there talking to my, my best friend in the world, Matthew. We had backpacked, uh, we had backpacked after, after high school together. We had come, driven down, moved into college together. We had been roommates. We had done all the same things. We were on exactly the same trajectory. And then it was like I looked in my rearview mirror and I realized my life was going this way and then Matthew's life was going this way. And I stood in that, in that wilderness of Schumann's compound and I looked him in the eyes and I said, I love you. I can't hang out here anymore in the same way. It's going to kill me. And I would love for you to come along in the place that I feel like I'm being led to go, but I know you might not, and that's okay. And I had that conversation like five or six times with my closest friends, and I remember, I remember the anguish of it. Years later, my friend Matthew would say, I felt like when, <laughs> when you changed, you quit our friendship. And that hurt, that hurt a ton. Because <laughs> that's what it wasn't what I intended to do, but I knew like I'm at a, I'm at, I'm at a Paul moment here. Like, if I don't go this way, then I, I, my life is going to start losing coherence. I, I feel like I'm going to literally fall apart. And I'm invited into this new way. I, I, I feel God's love is calling me, but it was so painful. The links that Paul is describing being willing to go for his people like that, his countrymen, his, his countrywomen, his family, his friends, uh, that they would come to a place where they know the love that he's come to know. It's, it's, it's shocking. It should shock us. I would be cut off from Christ that they might be brought in. I think it lets us know that Paul understood that he had not received this, this grace, this salvation, that he hadn't been singled out because he was on the right track and he finally crossed the, 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 the level where God was like, you did it, you accomplished it, now let me bring you the rest of the way. That he was absolutely running as hard as he could in the wrong direction and God intervened in his life. And it was absolutely by grace. But you can tell the question's been haunting him a little bit, even since the first chapter. And in the letter to the Romans, Paul's been telling the story of the world, but he, he can't ignore and he can't 
not come back to the story of Israel. And though he's mentioned it, like this isn't a parenthetical statement because he's been mentioning it all, all along the way. But now he's like, I have to make a few things abundantly clear because yeah, many of my countrymen and women are, are not seeing Messiah for who Messiah is in this moment, but I want you to know God's incredible love for them and God's incredible promise-keeping nature haven't changed. So, I think we can break this long passage down into a couple of movements. And the, and the first is that no promise left behind. Forgive the cheesiness at that point. Okay, it's a long text. Okay, relax. Throughout the, the, the scriptures, there is this principle that you see over and over again. Jesus teaches it uh, when he teaches the parables. It's like the kingdom of God is like a seed that falls in the ground and it grows up and it becomes a tree. And then that tree like sheds seeds and those seeds gr- gr- grow up. There's this tree, the seed to tree to seed principle about the way the kingdom of God grows in the world. There is a stream to river metaphor. <laughs> like it starts in a small specific place and then it grows and spills the bank and floods the world. God is going to bring worldwide change, healing, and salvation, but he does it by beginning in a specific place. And so a device that you see over and over again in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Psalms, Psalm 105 is an, is an example, multiple places in, 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 in Chronicles, is Israel will recount its story for itself. The, 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 the saints in Israel will be retelling the story of God's faithfulness to them over and over. And that's what Paul does here in, in, in Romans 9 through 11. He starts with Abraham and Sarah. He goes to Isaac and Rebekah. He goes to Jacob, whose sons become the nation of Israel, and then on to the world. And he's, showing God, he, he's saying, God was planning to, to make a tree that brought fruit to the entire world, but he started in a seedling place. He started with specific people, and this is always how God works. He comes, and someone who just has vague ideas about him, he says their name. Many of you know what that feels like, for God to speak your name by the Spirit in your heart. Know that he's calling you. So Paul is, is clear to remind us um, that God has made these covenant promises to Israel that there's a depth of his love and his commitment to work with Israel to demonstrate his character and his salvation in the world. And so he, he runs through right at the top some of the staggering things that, that, have, that make up Israel's inheritance. So the promise that he's talking about are the adoption, God's glory, covenant, God's law, God's word being given, God's presence in the temple, and, God, and, and, and God's actual promises. And I just want to Hit each of those re- really quickly. Paul, Paul says at, at the top in Romans 9, he mentions, he mentions these things as, as consisting of Israel's inheritance. So first, adoption. God chose them. He said, I see you and I want you to be my family. And in all the ways you think that you're not qualified, I'm going to walk with you and show you that my love will qualify you. I'm going to make you my family by sheer grace and love. Then he says they inherited God's glory. <laughs> And that's a a, a word that fits great in Christian songs, but what on earth is it talking about? God's glory is the revelation of God's presence. It is God being seen for who God really is. And that's incredibly powerful. To to Moses, that's a burning bush that's speaking out the the, the name of God to him. It's it's God's delivering power, taking them through the Red Sea. And and the prophet Ezekiel, God's glory is so majestic and so difficult to describe that it's like whirling wheels and horses and fire and smoke. And like, what on earth is this? Try to read Ezekiel this afternoon. They got to know and see 
God's resplendent, revealed beauty, power, majesty, and love. God dealt with these specific people to say, the whole world needs to know about my glory, and I'm going to start by showing it to you. And in the middle of that, in the middle of his glory being revealed, God made covenant promises to Israel. He said, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. I'm going to show you what I'm like. Now, I want you to keep my word. And when you don't keep my word, I'm going to have to, there's going to be a word picture for the nations around you to see that when you fail to keep my word, the consequences are devastating. But my promise to you is going to, be, is going to remain. He made covenant promises to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. Then he gives his word, the law. We talk about this quite a bit, but God reformed a nation that had grown up for 400 years in slavery to be his free people by giving them the constitution of his freedom, to give him the, by giving them his word, his law. But not just that, he also gave his presence in the heart of the tabernacle, in the heart of the temple was actually Yahweh, the Shekinah glory of God, that the people could come and worship and experience the nearness of God. And the promises, all down through Israel's law and prophets are these promises over and over again. Even if you fail, I'm not gonna give up on you. Even if it seems like you're in exile and God has forgotten his promises, he is going to keep them. Second Peter 1 says that it's by the promises of God that we participate in his divine nature. And this is, Israel learned this before anyone. When you live on the promises of God as if they're true, you begin to have a share in God's actual character and nature being formed in you and in your community. So that, that, that's, that's, you know, and really, in just a few sentences, Paul sketches out this incredible inheritance. Adoption, God's glory, God's covenant, God's law, God's temple, God's promises, a share in his nature. But then Paul has to be honest about the reality that many in Israel were far away from seeing and participating in all these things that made up their inheritance. Many of them were far away from God's plan to heal and rescue the world. Many of them were still doing their own thing. And so he goes back and he says, listen, let me show you how the promise progressed. Let me show you how the the, the promise, the inheritance, how it moved along. And he makes it clear that God is the one who accomplished the fulfillment of these promises. And it was by God's own guiding hand, even in the midst of the chaos of the world and the conventions of the world, it was God's guiding hand that steered these promises forward. So he makes a point to say God did not always work with the firstborn though that would have been the convention. That would have been the expectation. He didn't always work with the firstborn. He didn't always choose the strong and the upright, even though that would have been what was expected. He chose to show his power and love in unexpected ways, but they were ways that he chose. His covenant advanced by promise. This is an important part of this long section. His covenant advanced by promise and not simply by genetics. So, God calls Abraham, and he makes him do what seems like a wild thing. Why is there so much circumcision talked about in in the scriptures? What's going on with that? There is a physical sign in the flesh of Abraham to say, the promise is coming through your line. But not every single person who is genetically connected to Abraham is spiritually connected to the promises that God has, has, has made. And he, and he makes that point really clear. There are many who say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go on my own way. And God says, okay, you're going to go on your own way. But I'm not going to forget my promise. And I'm going to continue to steer 
the story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, becomes the, 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 his 12 sons become the nation. So Paul has to address something. He has to address the controversy of God being sovereign. What do we say about the fact that God can choose to do whatever God wants? All right, this is the point where, like, if you've ever led a, a Christian small group, your palms start to sweat a little bit. Is he going to talk about predestination, man? What's going on? This makes me nervous. That's your voice. That's not mine. So Paul has to say a few things about the fact that God can choose to do what he wants and that he chooses to accomplish the keeping of his covenant by promise and not simply by genetics. And, and I want to say this. One of the things that we definitely know about God being sovereign is that it does not mean that he has taken significant, meaningful choices out of human hands. What, whatever else we know of God being sovereign and directing the world in a significant way and making promises in seed form that he fulfills in tree form year, years, centuries later, however, God is sovereign over the world and he's able to make a promise that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his, his purposes, and then he's able to fulfill that over centuries. But even with that being true, it doesn't mean that you and I don't have significant, eternally significant choices to make or that we don't bear responsibility for our choices. This is part of the, the two sides of the mystery. God is in control. God can make promises and keep them. You and I have real choices to make, and those choices matter. You think it's a mystery? A lot of books have been written on this. A lot of ink spilled, blood spilled. Fantastic. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to say, I'm going to work with this nation. I'm going to choose this family. I'm going to make them into a family even against all odds. Then I'm going to make this family that was formed against all odds into a nation that though there are many stronger, mightier empires in the world, I'm going to use this people in, in, in their weakness and frailty, and I'm going to pour my strength through them. I'm going to work with them in a particularly intimate way. It says that he chose them to be vessels of his mercy. That, that passage, that, that phrase, vessels of his mercy, means that God intended to pour his mercy through this people to the world. And that was his decision to make. It was not based on their achievements, but it was based on his grace. But even still... Even still, with God's sovereign choice, many rejected God's work and God's plan. Israel stumbled in a couple of ways according to, to Paul's description here. There was times where they had outward obedience in, in, in the religious practices, but they were missing uh, the inward connection, the intimate familiarity. There were times where they were, they were living with entitlement. And, and so there was an, uh, Israel stumbled, and this is, should be important, right? For everyone who has encountered the covenant love of God by grace, we should mark the story of Israel as Paul is, is leading us to do. Israel stumbled out of pride, not all of Israel, but some of Israel stumbled out of pride. And it's sort of like the pride that you see in Jesus' famous story of the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son comes home and he's embraced by the prodigal love of the father. Actually, the most extravagant thing in that story is the love of the father. And yet the older brother, what does the older brother do? I've always been here. I've always kept your word. I've always been at home. I've always been doing what I'm supposed to do. And now this son of yours who's wasted everything comes home and that spirit... That, that, that the promise should pass by genetics alone, that, that we should be the special entitled people, that, that tripped up many in Israel over the years. And Jesus, when he's like, you wonder why Jesus interacts with the Pharisees more than anyone else? 
He's not getting in arguments with people who had totally walked away from God. He's getting in arguments with people who are trying to sort out how to live by Moses' law in practical, real ways. But, but Jesus co- confronts him and he's like, listen, you're tithing your mint and your dill and you're trying to keep the law down to the letter, but you're missing the heart of God and you're treating the poor like crap and, and, and your hearts are hardened and you're not, moved by, you're not moved by seeing what I'm doing in the world. You're, you're full of religious activity, but you're missing that knowledge, that, that intimate familiarity with my heart. I c- c- come back and some did. There was zeal without knowledge. Religious energy without love would be another way to say it. And Paul says they they try to establish their righteousness by their own achievements instead of by faith. We know the heroes of Israel's story, right? The Abrahams and the Ruths and and the, the Rahabs even and the Davids, right? David is someone who, who failed spectacularly, <laughs> Spectacularly, So this isn't an issue of which people are, are sinful and prone to brokenness and which people aren't. It's which people are going to, to live by God's established uh, righteousness, by, God, by trusting in God's promises or trusting in their own ability. That's essentially the, the question. Will you be your own God or will you have God for God? That's Israel's question. That's our question. So Paul's heartbroken that many of his friends and family and countrymen and women are missing Messiah. And he's giving himself, when he goes into a town, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, what does he do? Every time he goes in and he finds a a synagogue and he tries to reason with his countrymen and say, this is Messiah, let me show you why. Let me show you that all the promises point to Jesus. Actually, that he is the culmination of every promise. That's the next thing I wanna say. Right in the heart of this argument, Paul says, let me show you how God has kept his promise, that God has been coming closer and closer, that he's not content for us just to maintain abstract ideas about him, that God has started with a seed, but it is becoming a tree that is bringing fruit to the whole world. God has started with a stream, but it has become a river, and it has spilled the banks of even Israel to flood the world, and God's grace and salvation and healing are becoming a flood that will touch every nation. God has made anyone who believes, that's the beauty of the, at the heart of this, anyone who believes can have a share in this new covenant and can be sent on a shared mission of love. What Israel uniquely represented in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the covenants, God is, is, is widening to include the world. Because we can't focus on everything, I wanna, I wanna submit that I think this is the heartbeat of these two chapters starting in verse eight of chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For is there, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
If you're like, this is a big text, I'm not convinced that that's the heartbeat, I'm going to give you one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. You take it from him. This is N.T. Wright. You ready? When Paul arrives at last at the central point of the argument of these chapters, we realize that this is where the whole story had been heading. God's purpose was to act within history to deal with the problem of evil. But this could only be done by employing a people who were themselves a part of the problem. Until the time was right for God's own son to emerge from their midst and all alone to take their destiny upon himself. And so God's covenant to Israel is fulfilled, is continuing to be fulfilled. And emerging from the nation of Israel, from the line of Abraham, the son of David is Messiah to take on himself all the failings of Israel, but also all the failings of the world. Anything that would keep us away, the word is coming nearer and nearer and nearer, that it would be in your mouth, that it would be in your heart. That's the first thing I want you to see. These different aspects of God's salvation and faithfulness that Paul's highlighting. The first is that God is near. He's been pressing in, not wanting people just to know about him, not just wanting them to have zeal, but to have that intimate familiarity. That, that Consider this. God wants to be so close to you, to know you so well, and for you to know God so well that God's very spirit lives in you. That's the way you're not just accomplishing religious activity to bolster your own record, but you're literally, literally living by the power of God in you. So who gets the glory? Well, God, but who gets the joy? You. <laughs> who gets the full abundant life? We do when we are submitted to the life of the Spirit in us. And this is what God has been doing. He's been saying, the temple is great. My Shekinah glory can dwell in the holies of holies. I can't change my character to be with you, but if you, if you will recognize the brokenness of the world and come to me carefully, and now he's saying, I've literally torn the veil and I'm ready to fill your lives with my Spirit because the, the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And if you've been listening... <laughs> to the promises God made to Israel, it's always been in there. Listen to Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is spoken as a prophet to Israel. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. God is coming near. So near that he would literally live inside of our ribcage and also inhabit the whole world. How will this happen? Anyone who believes, everyone who calls. On Israel's Messiah. He is Israel's Messiah. If you miss that, he's not just your personal savior, as important as that is. He's Israel's Messiah because God's a promise-keeping God from all the way back. And if you, want him to, if you want to be able to count on him to keep his promises and covenant to you, you need to look back and see that he's always been keeping his promises. He's Israel's Messiah. He's also the savior of every tribe and tongue and nation. Anyone who believes, everyone who calls. Hear the gospel. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Our scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. They will never regret it. 
For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus has accomplished. The gospel is this. Jesus has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished for you to be adopted into the family forever. Jesus has fallen like a seed and died and been broken to raise up and bring life to all who call on him. And now, and this is the, one of the last things I want to mention, is that the rescued are the sent. <laughs> like in a sense, Israel's vocation was to represent God in the world. And though some of them stumbled in that, there was always a remnant that kept the reality burning in the center of their hearts. And, and the reality is that God intended the ones he led out of slavery in Egypt and through the waters uh, of, of the Red Sea and through the wilderness to the promised land, that they were meant to be the sent to represent his love in the world. And that's the same thing that's true in the gospel. The rescued are the sent. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I have a partially webbed toes, which makes me a great swimmer. That's a really high arch. My feet aren't great. Aren't great looking, so I hold on to this promise. How beautiful are the feet of those. One day, Lord, won't you do it? Are you seeing the way the story, that was just a little parenthetical statement. We're still tracking here, okay? Where Israel uniquely represented God in the world, you are now invited in because of their story, because of many of their stories of faithfulness, you are invited to represent God in the world. And the fruit of that seed that grows up is, is the fruit of the Spirit. What happens when the Holy Spirit of God fills a life? It begins to produce a certain type of character. Galatians talks about that character as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That, that the fruit of the Spirit would be created in your life so that you would be a testimony of the character of God in the world. Also the fruit of salvation. That you can invite someone to Alpha or share a little bit of your story with a coworker or pray for, for a fam, family member for 10 years and then have a, a meaningful conversation with them. And then all of a sudden, like he did to, to my, myself in university and to Paul on the road to Damascus and to many of you in many different circumstances, the love of God breaks in somehow. And they start to see, oh my gosh, I'm starting to see the, the thing come into focus. I, I, I am loved by God. There is a calling here. So Paul has a hope. Still seeing himself as a rabbi of Israel, he has a hope. That Israel will remember their calling. That the remnant will grow. That there will be many who see that their, their inheritance and they were once far off and they're going to be brought near. So you see him say in verse 11... Of, of chapter 11, again I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Paul's hoping for the day that many of his neighbors and countrymen will see the beauty of Messiah. And so he introduces this deeply spiritual concept of holy FOMO. This is where we're going to end. You saw, you saw this coming, right? 
Holy FOMO, right? Holy fear of missing out. That's actually what, what Paul is, in, is saying, that, that the salvation of these, like, these random like, people who are just following the imperial cult of Rome and bumbling around in some city like Ephesus or Corinth, that now they've been apprehended by the gospel of God and filled with his very spirit. And these, the zealous rabbis who are, who, who are following Jesus, they're going to see and say, God has apprehended this person's life. I want what they want. How am I wanting what they want? I'm the one who's chosen and called. What's going on here? And their spiritual pride would fall and they would say, this is the life I'm meant to live. Right, we deal with social media, FOMO in, in our world, right? And on some level, like comparison is the thief of joy. Nothing will rob your contentment quicker than seeing someone else, some filtered version of someone else's life scrolling past yours and saying, what are they, I'm parenting wrong, I'm, I'm leading wrong, my, my career has gone wrong, what, how, how did they end up in this place? So there's a type of FOMO, fear of missing out, that's, that's devastating because what it is is you're just seeing a small sliver of the full reality. But have you ever met someone that you actually knew the details of their life and you saw how they lived and you said, there's something about the way they live that I'm longing for. It's speaking to something that's true in me. And I think that holy FOMO is actually good. It's, I, I, I can think of the, 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 the friends and the mentors in my life who have stirred me to want to live a life better than I was living it. Not out of some place of spiritual pride, but out of a place of longing. I, I want to pray like that, right? You see, like, you see that in the followers of Jesus. Like, however you're praying is different than how we're praying. Teach us to pray, right? And, and, and you meet someone who's, who's just a little further along in walking with Jesus or, or, or living the holy life. And they're not just confessing the same sins that they confessed last week. They're actually living in freedom in some way. And you say, I want that life. And that's a good, beautiful thing. There are certain there are certain situations and cases in which we should not be content. We should not give ourselves just the permission to settle for spiritual mediocrity and think, well, Netflix is the best I can do with my Friday night. There are times when we should realize that we're called to something more than we are living. I can think of specific faces in my mind. Friends that I've seen living and it's, it's created this holy longing in me that there's more to life than, I, than, I, than I'm currently experiencing. The types of things where I want a life that's not entangled with so, much, with so many meaningless and trivial pursuits. I want a life where my time isn't being wasted. I want a life where I'm not just confessing the same sins over and over, but I'm moving on towards freedom. I want a life where my convictions match my actions. I want a life where I'm, where I'm not just talking about God, but I'm actually praying and seeing God answer. I want a life that experiences joy in God's presence, that takes something like a Brooklyn worship night and says, yeah, what I want to do with my Friday is be in God's presence with the, with the brothers and sisters. I believe that God would do something powerful in my heart in that time. I want a life of new God stories. I don't want to be talking about when God spoke to me three years ago. Or living on secondhand faith by someone else. I want to have new God stories. I unexpectedly invited this dude in the AT&T store to come to Alpha. And then I couldn't believe it. He actually showed up. And like that type of thing where God prompts you and you take the prompting. And, and you see holiness breaking out. The fruit of the spirit. I want a life that's expecting God to show up. I want a holy life. That's what you are invited to.
the long and winding argument of Romans keeps coming back to that heart. That for Jewish people or for Gentile people, for people of any tribe, tongue, and nation, any political persuasion, there's an invitation to know that you can stop being your own God and say, Jesus is Lord, confess it with your mouth and believe in your heart and be rescued and then be sent on this shared mission of love. So these are the, the questions I'm, I'm, I want to end with. What are the things you feel anguish about? If all of them are only personal, I think it's time to ask, do we have any that have to do with love? The second question is, do you really believe that God's promises never fail? Many of you are really familiar with circumstances and situations where it seems like God's promises being fulfilled were a million miles away. Can we take the example of Israel's story, the example of our own story, and say, I believe that God's promises don't fail. Are you living like you are the rescued and the sent? In utter spiritual humility because it's by grace we've been rescued, but also in courage because this is how God is building his family. Am I fully alive to God? Jesus didn't just come in the world to solve our personal problems and to make our lives a little better and to become our life coach. He's been working a plan to heal and repair the world from the very beginning. And like a seed, it has grown up and to become a tree. And that tree scattered seeds and, became, and, and, the, and the stream became a river and spilled the banks of Israel and now is flooding the world. And so the invitation is, will you again recognize Messiah? Recognize that Jesus is Lord. Confess and believe and know that you are sent with beautiful feet to embody the message of God's love in Brooklyn. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray in these next moments as we, as we worship, as we come to the table, that you would stir our hearts, that we would feel anguish for the things that you feel anguish for, that we would believe that your promises never fail, that we can actually have a share in your very life by living as if your promises are true. I pray that we would see the beauty wherever we are moving throughout the city, that we are sent to carry the message of your love I pray that we would live fully alive to what our inheritance is as your sons and daughters. Come Holy Spirit and take all that's been said and apply it with incredible specificity to each of our hearts and minds. What do you want to say to us? How should we respond? Come, lead us Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.